you're joining us in... Um, I'm in the middle of a series, a journey through the 10th book of the New Testament, um, the book of Ephesians, my absolute favorite book in uh, the Bible. And um, in this book, what Paul, who is the author of this book, is doing is really telling us what God sees when he looks at us. What God says is most true about us and what God supplies to us because of our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul in this book is laboring to see a church convinced of what God thinks about them. To trade in what everyone else might have said about you, what you might think about yourself, what the culture might call you to be. To trade that in and take a seat and look at ourselves from God's vantage. And what you believe to be most true about you has a profound bearing on your disposition, your decisions, your direction, and in so many ways, the destination of your life. And so as we're journeying through this book and we're discovering these beautiful truths, we want to lean in and embrace God's truth, what he says about us. So that's what will mark and determine our direction in Life And so uh, this morning we want to continue discovering these glorious truths from God's um, vantage point. And so if you have a copy of the scriptures, um, man, meet me in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start reading at verse 14 and we're going to read through verse 19. Um, if you don't have a copy of the scriptures, a couple of things. We're going to have the scriptures up on the screens. But better yet, if you forgot a copy or you don't have a copy... There's a bunch of Bibles in the back by the information center. Feel free to just get up and go grab one. Um, And if you don't own one, please keep it um, and read it. It's such a solid, solid book. But this morning, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, starting at verse 14. Let me read um, what Paul says to the church in Ephesus. He says, for this reason... I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp How wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. What the Apostle Paul, in this section of his letter, is expressing is a longing that he desperately has for the church. He wants them, wants us in turn, to become so convinced of something our hearts so desperately long to be convinced of. And that is the truth that we are. 
loved. And what Paul is communicating, even through his prayer, is that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are immeasurably and unconditionally loved by God. You couldn't possibly be loved any more than you are as you sit here right now. Do you you feel it? Which is really going to be the question. And far above a mere knowledge, far above a cognitive awareness of being loved, because we would all hit the buzzer on that quiz question. But far above that, Paul is longing to see a church that experiences what it means to be Fully loved. That's what it means in verse 19 at the end when he says, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. How do you know something that surpasses knowledge? He's saying it's an experience beyond simply knowing it. And his longing is that the church would not only become convinced intellectually, but that would become experientially aware of the fact that we are unconditionally and immeasurably Loved, which is such good news, um, by the way, because more than anything else, we want to be happy and we want to be loved. In fact, we believe we'll be happy if we are loved. But we long so deeply and so desperately to be loved. It's why, by the way, you dress to impress. It's a reason you work out to get your stuff on point. It's this hope that maybe someone will notice and and, then maybe they'll love me and and life will be awesome and I'll be so happy. It's a reason why you date and date and break up and date and break up and date and break up some more. It's the reason why you may quit on a marriage in favor of a different marriage. It's the belief that maybe this time when I upgrade to date or marriage 2.0, this one is going to be the one that finally quenches the longing to be loved. I'll tell you what I find really interesting about that, is we so deeply and desperately long to be loved, but we are so unfair to our hearts in a number of different ways. And one of the primary ways is that we chase and we long after love, but we don't even know what it is we long for. I'm running and I'm looking for love. And what do you mean by love? What are you looking for? And we don't know. We've never even taken the time to define what it is we're looking and longing for. And so what happens is we end up stumbling on some really, really exciting feeling and think we found it. Turns out it's just an infatuatory feeling that fleets and vanishes no sooner than it's come because that wasn't it. Or it turns out we find something that might closely resemble it, but it requires a little work. It requires a little vulnerability like, that's not you've got mail. That's not it. And so we move on. Never having defined it. So you know what? I think before we move on, let's define what we mean when we are speaking about this idea of unconditional love. Uh, To be loved, what we long for is someone who fully knows me, fully accepts me, 
and is fully for my good. Did you know that when you jump in a relationship and out of a relationship and into another relationship, you're looking for someone who fully knows you and fully accepts you and is fully for your good. Unconditional love. It's more than a feeling. It's a confidence that there is someone, someone who would say, hey, Kondo, I see your dings, I know your dents, and I want you still. Not only do I want you still, I want you to shine. I want you to soar. I want to do everything I could do to see you thrive and become the fullest version of everything that you were designed and intended to be. We long for it, but oftentimes we don't even realize that that's what we are looking for. But another thing that happens to us in our insanity is that we we struggle to believe it's possible for us. We, we, We just do. And the primary reason for that, by the way, when we think about unconditional love, is we long for it, but we don't really buy that it's a real thing. And if it is, I don't really buy that it's a real thing for me because we've never experienced it. I mean, if we're to take a survey and do kind of a a historical track record of your experiences with people, we would soon find it's just not something that we have ever experienced. Unconditional? Are you kidding me? I mean, all the love I've ever known has come with conditions. They may not be spoken conditions, but I know their conditions. If you mess up for the eighth time, that's a condition. If you don't get a certain GPA, that's a condition. If you don't meet a certain expectation level, that's a condition. If your figure doesn't stay on point, that's a condition. Unconditional. I don't know anybody who loves like that. So obviously that's not a thing. And for some of us, it's more that our history says love? (laughs) You mean leave, right? Because the the people who are supposed to love me have left. They found out something about me. They found out some dent. They found out something about me and they bailed out. They left. They abandoned me. They betrayed me. And so forgive me if I don't think unconditional love is a thing. Forgive me if I cover over my scars because as much as I long to be fully known, I'm scared that if you fully know me, you fully leave. And we find ourselves struggling to embrace this concept of unconditional love, but we don't admit that. We'll sing, oh, he loves us. But if I were to ask you, really? You would say, that's all right. We get to this passage of scripture and we hear the words that you are immeasurably loved. And for so many of us, it's like, yeah, it's all right. And I don't really buy it. 
I don't think it's a thing, and even if it's a thing, I don't think it's a thing for me. And I've, I've completely transferred all of my hurts and all of my wounds and all of my abandonments onto Jesus, and I just can't see how it's going to be any different with him. And so he and I, we break up, we make up, we become friends, we stop being friends. He loves me, he loves me not. And then here comes Paul. Saying it's not just possible to experience love unconditionally. It's already yours. It's immeasurably yours right now. And you are not fully living until you become convinced that you are fully loved. So let's look at um, Paul's sequence. The way he um, speaks this to the Ephesian church um, as he recounts a prayer that he's been praying for them. And my prayer is that the Spirit of God will do something in us that awakens places that have quit on the possibility of an unconditional love, have become numb to the thought that would be awakened, to go far beyond simply answering the right question about, yes, he loves me, the Bible tells me so, into a place where we might start to experience what it means to be loved. Ephesians 3, verse 14 and 15, look at what it says. Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Uh, that's just a fancy way, by the way, of Paul saying, hey, y'all, so I've been praying for you guys. Except he says it with such an intense tone that when the Ephesians would have read this, they would have thought, whoa, that's a little extreme. I mean, that's a little intense there, buddy. I mean, seriously? See, because if I told you, hey, I've been praying for you, you would say, mm, thanks, whatever. Assuming you believe me. Or you might say, like, mm, must be nice to be paid to pray for people. You know, I don't know what you would say. Um, you say whatever. But if I told you, hey, I felt so burdened to pray for you that for the last month, I've taken a vacation day on Friday, and I've walked circles around Winona Lake, the whole lake, several times, praying for you. You would now perk up and say, whoa, 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 what? That's intense. That's what Paul is saying to the Ephesian church. He's saying, hey. I have been kneeling to pray for you. Now, you've got to understand in that cultural context, the predominant posture for prayer was standing. And you see that if you see videos of a Jewish man standing at the wailing wall praying, he's standing and perhaps rocking back and forth. That was the common posture for prayer. People didn't kneel. Now, the concept of kneeling would have been understood by the Ephesians. It's what somebody did when they were immensely desperate. They would throw themselves all out there on the ground in the presence of a powerful superior pleading with them to rule in their favor. 
Paul starts this section by telling the church there is something I so passionately desire for you that it's driven me to fall on my knees in this messed up, jacked up prison cell in Rome. There is something so desperate that I desire God to rule in your favor. I've been taking a vacation day and I've been walking around the lake to beg him for your sake. Now listen, at this point, it doesn't really matter what you believe about the Bible. It doesn't really matter what you believe about prayer, the power of prayer. You have to at least be curious to know what would drive a man in prison not to be praying for his own release. Not to be praying for cushier situation, but to be praying for the Ephesian church. I'm just saying, just pastoral confession. If I was in the county, block up. I don't know how much I'd be using my energy to pray for your heating bill. Like, uh, or your stuff. I'd be making connections, trying to bust out of there. I'd be thinking about me, but for Paul, something stirred him so deeply that he was in this unconventional posture of desperation, pleading with a powerful superior to act in the favor of the Ephesians. This would have gotten their attention, and I think it should get ours. Thankfully, we don't have to guess what Paul asks for. He tells us, right? Look at what he says in verse 16. He says, I pray... That out of his glorious riches, he, God, may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. He says, I've been praying. Hey, daddy. See, because I can call him that. See, because although he is a powerful superior above every powerful superior, he's adopted me into his family. And one of the perks is I get to call him daddy. And one of the things I know about my daddy is daddy be loaded. If we need it, he's got it. If I lack it, he possesses it in a limitless supply. And so what Paul is saying is, I've been pleading, I've been taking a vacation day, and I've been asking our father, hey dad, would you please plunder your secret stash of power and give some to the church in Ephesus? Would you please take some of your limitless power and place it in the inner being, he says, of your people. Inner being, by the way, is just another way of speaking of the headquarters, uh, speaking of the control center of our lives, the place from which my decisions, the place from which my uh, dispositions are ordered. It's the center of my life. So here's what Paul is praying. Paul is praying that, 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 Dad, you would please take some of your power and you would place it in the epicenter of their being. Why is that so crucial? Because if you put power in the headquarters of their being, the rest of their being becomes spiritually buff. So please, plunder your supply and make them strong. Now, um, we talked about the fact that in the Greek language, there are a number of different words to describe power. And a few weeks ago, we talked about what some of those were. And, and so thankful, this is a church of people who never forget anything I say. You're going to remember this right away. Uh, but one of the synonyms for power is the Greek word kratos. 
Interesting word. That's the word Paul is praying for. Now, if you remember, kratos is the idea of conquering power. It's the power or the capacity to conquer an opponent. It's the strength to subdue resistance. It's the ability to overpower whatever power might be in our way. It's conquering power. And Paul is saying, would you put some of your conquering power in the epicenter of who they are so you can make them buff conquerors, make them war ready? Interesting prayer. Feel free to pray it for me, by the way. I'll take it. Uh, So you'd expect that the next thing Paul would talk about, I mean, after saying kratos and power and give them strength and make them buff, you'd expect the next thing to happen would be a war. Like, we are Sparta, right? Next thing, there's going to be a war. There's going to be some kind of an epic battle. At a bare minimum, a schoolyard scuffle. But nope. Look, look at what Paul says next. This is just um, crazy and, and very confusing. He says, give them conquering power so that, look at the first part of verse 17, so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. Or in this case, talking directly to them. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Wait. Okay. Let's take a quick confusion timeout. Um, confusion point number one. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I thought that Jesus already lives in you by his Holy Spirit. So why would Paul be praying for strength so that Christ may dwell? I thought he already did. Confusion point number two. Let's assume Christ doesn't live in us, which he does. Why would I need Kratos conquering, buffing up, warring power to welcome Christ to live in me? Like, who am I fighting? Am I fighting Jesus? Heard he doesn't like to lose very much. So that wouldn't be a good idea. So what is Paul saying in his prayer for the Ephesians? I love this book. Such a powerful prayer. Um, I think one of the the best uh, illustrations is a a story in the Old uh, Testament. Uh, One of my favorite stories, and you know that because of how often I've referenced this story, but the story of the Old Testament is about uh, a prophet named Elisha, one of God's servants. Uh, Elisha just went and obeyed God and got himself on the most wanted list of an incredibly powerful king. So this king puts a hit out. On Elisha. And what he does is he sends his military force to go and surround the city in which Elisha was staying in the middle of the night. So morning comes, Elisha's servant wakes up first and he jumps up onto the balcony and he looks around. And he's like, okay, so we're going to die today. I mean, he just completely panics. He freaks out. And then he's Elisha, Elisha, what are we going to do? And in response, Elisha just utters a very simple prayer. He says, God, open his 
eyes. And in an instant, that dude looks up again and he sees behind the army that's surrounding them, a more vast army surrounding that army that was surrounding them with chariots of fire. And I imagine this guy looking at Elisha and saying, um, why did those guys get here? <laughs> and Elisha's, mm, dumb, dumb. They've been here the whole time. <laughs> you just didn't realize it. That Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. Paul is not praying that Jesus Christ would make his residential debut in our hearts. He's all moved in. What Paul is praying is that we would become more aware of his presence. That we would experience the glory of his goodness. Paul is not praying that Jesus would move in. Paul is praying that our awareness of Jesus living in us might move. Up, that it might become more real to us. That we might have that aha moment of, wait, how long have you been here? A king of the universe in me? When did I've been here all along. You just didn't realize it. And so Paul prays for power. But it still raises the question, what do we need battle Kratosing power for. That still seems to be a question left in this passage. See, here's the thing. Um, You and I both know that just because someone lives in your house doesn't mean you see them much. I know there's a silent amen from parents of teens. Um, Because just because someone is around doesn't mean you connect much with them. In fact, uh, many of us know all too painfully what it's like to live in the same home with someone and not even be on speaking terms. What it's like to live together while living entirely apart. Which is part of why Paul is praying that we would become more acquainted. That we would bump into Jesus more often. He's sitting in this recliner in the headquarters of our lives. And Paul wants us to become increasingly and more intensely aware of that. Which is why he's circling the lake. Saying, I'll stay in prison If you allow them to experience more of Christ's dwelling presence in them. By the way, uh, imagine how differently you would approach loneliness if you became convinced the king of the universe lives in you. I mean, seriously. Think about what that would do to the idea that you are alone. Or what it would do in light of threats from the outside surrounding us and intimidating us. When we realize greater is the one in us than every would-be threat 
in the world around us. Greater is the army that surrounds the army that surrounds us. And Paul wants church to become more aware of that. But back to the power. Um, Paul knows if we are going to become more aware and more acquainted with the residing presence of Jesus Christ in our lives, it's going to require a war kind of strength. Why? Because every single day, you are going to face a thousand obstacles and a thousand oppositions to you encountering and experiencing the person of Jesus Christ. Paul knows that. If you are going to truly experience Jesus resident in you, you are going to have to go to war against the opposition that comes and the lies that surround you and say, I know what you did. Last weekend was a crazy party. You did some crazy stuff. You just pray that none of those pictures surface on any social media outlet anywhere. In fact, you feel dirty. And when you feel dirty, the armies start to lie to you and tell you there is no way Jesus Christ sticks with you through this. You are going to need power to pummel that lie to get out of the way so you can see a Christ who never leaves and never forsakes regardless of what you do. That will require power. Paul knows that we are constantly going to be bullied by the lie that your divorce has outed you. You're done. Your temptation to cut is too much. Jesus cannot live in a dump like this. And so we start to retreat. We start to believe that the way other people have abandoned us is the way Jesus is abandoning us. And we're going to need to overpower those lies that seek to overpower us and obscure the face of Jesus. And so Paul prays, Daddy, would you please empty your account, which can never empty, and pour some power into them so they can fight the lies. So they can fight those things that show up and say, hey, why don't you give me Jesus' seat of priority in your heart? Why don't you give me busyness priority so I can take over? Why don't you give promotion centrality in your heart? There's so many temptations that we are daily facing saying, hey, forget Jesus. Come hang out with me and I will... Lies, lies, lies. Obstacles, obstacles, obstacles. Or you wonder why maybe for years you've been talking about, I need to be in the word more. I need to be with Jesus more. And yet you haven't really moved. You can't remember the last time you experienced the residing presence of Jesus Christ. Because I don't know what strategy you've been trying. But if you are going to pummel the opposition that obscures the face of Christ, that's going to take some holy power. The Holy Spirit is going to carry some of that power and drop it in the epicenter of who you are. It's the only way it happens. I can't tell you how often, for me, I live with this remorse. I don't see enough of Christ, so I've got to try harder. I've got to meet more conditions. And Paul says, no, you, you need a heftier dose of kratos, his power, to not only see, but to enjoy him in the middle of things that will vie for your attention and your affections. It's a powerful prayer.
But Paul doesn't just want us to experience more of Christ's presence in the general sense. The point of this passage is he wants us to experience something very particular about Christ's residing presence in us. He wants us to have the strength to push through obstacles and to enjoy Jesus so that, and look at what he says, second part of verse 17. It says, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, that's us, church, to grasp, not just to cognitively know, but to grasp How wide and long and high and deep is this unconditional, immeasurable love of Christ? Dad, I'm pleading for power, not just so that the church would generally know. Not just so they would experience and enjoy the residing presence of Jesus, but also so they would become completely convinced that in him... They are immeasurably loved. It is a thing, and it is a thing for them. Regardless of what history has said, regardless of what the wounds speak, regardless of what the disappointments scream, may they know this is a thing, and it's a thing for them. And I love verse 17. Um, And we'll see this in a second because the question is not whether or not we are immeasurably loved. The question is not whether or not we are surrounded in every direction by unconditional love. The question isn't whether or not we have more love than our puny hearts could possibly even contain. That's not the question. The question is whether or not we can fully grasp how fully loved we already are. That's the only question. If I'm not experiencing and interacting with love, it's not because I'm not loved. It's because I'm not grasping just how loved I am. Which is why Paul is circling the lake. Did you notice what Paul says here? He says, um, and I pray, in verse 17, the second part, and I pray that you, being rooted And established in love. I love that. No, 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 no. He doesn't say, I pray that you would be rooted and established in love. Doesn't say that. He says, you already are rooted and established in love. That is not the same thing. Huge difference. If I say to you, hey. You really need to be more of a dodo head, you know. You're like, no, thanks, I'm good. But if I say to you, hey, um, being that you're a major dodo head, um, I I wonder how you live with yourself. See, now you, we have a situation. Now you take some attitude. Now it's odd. Like, what did you say? What did you call me? What did you call me? And that's the attitude the heart ought to take with the words of the Apostle Paul. What did you call me? What did you say is true about me? Oh, excuse me. I said you are rooted and established in love. If you don't like it, take it up with the one who rooted and established you. Rooted is an agricultural term, which implies if you picture a tree being deeply rooted and the sap or the nutrients or whatever is in the ground of love is coursing through every limb of that thing. That's you. 
There is no fiber of your being that isn't completely saturated with love because you're planted. And the word established is an architectural word. Which implies that you have been sunk so deep into love that nothing can possibly shake you out of it. You are fully loved and love won't let you go, is what Paul is saying. That's the fact. It's not what he's asking for. He's saying this is true. The only question is, do you grasp that? Do you grasp it? Do you embrace the fact that you are immovably rooted and established? In love. Do you embrace the fact that there is nothing short of full knowing of you. And full acceptance of you. And full desire for your good. There's no absence of that whatsoever. And the question is, is that your experience? With Jesus Christ. Is your heart convinced that you are already fully known and fully accepted without condition? That's what it means when he says wide and long and high and deep. That's just you are surrounded. And I love this picture. You are rooted and established in love. And love is rooted and established in you. Because love is a person and he resides in the epicenter of who you are. You can't escape being loved. It's just what is true on account of the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so Paul knows that we struggle so deeply with believing and embracing that unconditional love is a thing. In fact, more to the point, Paul knows that unconditional love is impossible for us to grasp. It's impossible. If you struggle to believe that you are unconditionally loved, The answer is not to run to Tinder or to run to the new relationship. The answer is not to get your body on point. The answer is not to make more money. The answer isn't to strive in some way or another. The answer is what Paul says. I take a day, I circle the lake. I so desperately want God to do something in you that you cannot do for yourself. If you are struggling to believe that you are loved and you are fully loved and you are forever loved, What we need more than anything else is a dose of the Spirit's power to open our eyes and to make us aware. That's the point of this passage. So I don't know what your search has been. I don't know what your disappointments have been in the past. I don't know how much you're experiencing the love that drives you to become the full version of what Christ made you to be. I don't know who you're chasing and what you're hoping will finally do it for you. But the offer stands. You are already loved. The only question is, are we pleading with God for the power to pummel through our wounds and to pummel through our pasts and see it and experience it 
beyond knowing. And so, Lord, my prayer is that you would do something so powerful and profound in us. And this is so hard for us, Lord, because we want some one, two, three steps of how to be more fully loved, but we already are. We want something that we can do in our own strength to experience love more, but there's nothing we can do. And this brings us to the place where we just must fall on our knees. And so I pray that as a church, your spirit would stir in us a desperation that says, we need you to give us the strength to grasp who we already are in you. And so, Lord, I do. I just pray that for someone here this morning, there will be an awakening, maybe for the first time, of an experience of your love. So do something we cannot do for your great name. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.